Welcome to the Painter's Dialectic Podcast. I am your host, Josh Green, a painter and art educator living in New York City. And today, philosopher Dylan Ahn and I are beginning a series of dialogues called Know Thyself, which will explore the practice of meditation. This series will guide the listener through the fundamentals of meditation and the process of gaining self-knowledge. In this first dialogue, we will introduce meditation and what to expect from this series. And remember, don't just listen to the podcast, participate in it. Go to our Patreon page and subscribe. It's called The Painter's Dialectic, and we have different tiers of behind-the-scenes content of how we develop these ideas. This will help us continue creating this meaningful content. You can also subscribe to us on Spotify. Be sure to comment, like, and share our content with your friends. If you'd like to check out our Instagram page, it's The Painter's Dialectic. You can check out mine at Josh Green Art. And if you'd like to study with me, you can go to greenatelier.art. Or if you'd like to check out what all I'm doing, you can go to joshgreenart.com. Dylan, it's good to see you. Yeah, it's nice to see you again. How are you? Doing good. Um, so today we're starting on a new <laughs> series of dialogues mm-hmm. about meditation. And I think it'd be good to just say why. Why we think that is the case. Hopefully you agree with me. Mm-hmm. But the more I think about things, there just doesn't seem to be anything solid mm. epistemically. And when I go out and read science or philosophy or, or anything in general, it's hard to find anything that feels solid that will withstand any type of investigation. And so meditation, I think, is, is an attempt to get some type of ground underneath you, right? To slow down, to really examine yourself and life and gain direct experience. Right. Rather than going out and listening to people and engaging in books, this could be meditation or contemplation, like an active type of thinking. But I think meditation especially has something because I feel at times like the mind is just this endless, dark labyrinth. <laughs> you know, you, you think you finally found some light. You know, the sun is finally rising. And then you read something else, or you get into something else, you think something else, and you find, okay, nope, still in the labyrinth, right? Um, I don't know, what's interesting to me about like Zen meditation is how unintellectual it is. I feel like my experience with Zen is to just reduce life down to the fundamentals. Waking up, cooking food, cleaning, getting in touch with your mind, just what is actually happening, what is actually real. Without the intellect at all, it's, it's a very free-form, unstructured type of meditation. I've, I've been thinking about what do I actually know about anything, and I could only come up with four things that I think I actually know. And these came from meditation. It's one that I'm aware what the nature of that awareness is, I have no idea. What I am, no idea, mm. you know? But I know that I'm aware, and I know that I experience a stream of reality, 
what the reality of that reality is, I have no idea, right? I know that I get patterns out of this information, right? And as we've examined epistemically, none of it's very sound. You can make your little coherent theory, little coherent image of how things are, but it's not sound. And then last, it's just important to be caring and loving. That seems like the only way forward is that. That's the only thing that makes any sense. I think meditation also for me in the ultimate sense is a kind of unity. You know, when all the concepts and everything fall away, I do feel unified with the space around me and, and with everything else. You know, it's not broken down. That's what I get out of it. Um, what, are you, what are your thoughts? Yeah, it is even possible to go one step further in terms of what you absolutely know. And that is, you could, you could <laughs> even say that I don't even know if I am aware. All I know is that there is awareness, <laughs> right? right? For instance, like, the reason why I say that, because there's like a famous philosopher called Descartes, and he sort of comes to a conclusion that in terms of what he knows absolutely for certain. He thinks, well, I think, therefore I am. Right? He thinks there is some thought going on, so therefore at least he could say that he definitely exists. Very interestingly, Hume goes, well, what is this I you speak? <laughs> right? Because if you do <laughs> reflection, you, you start to realize that this notion of I doesn't really have any concrete definition. And so Hume would say, well, there is thought, but it would be one too many assumptions to assume that there is an I doing the thinking, right? And scientists, you know, some scientists would agree that there is uh, a function of consciousness and that consciousness believes that it is a sort of a unified center of experience. But where is that experience being unified into is unclear. Right? Some people might say brain, but the brain is made of many different parts. <laughs> right? So even though we might like to think that we are a brain or a nervous system, it's a system, it's a function. Like there's no you know, little man you know, sitting in the brain operating things. That's not uh, necessarily how that works. So I guess to, to push you know, even further, we could say there is awareness, and therefore meditation is tapping into this one thing that we are absolutely aware of. Of, right, that there is awareness going on. Um, you rightly say that in terms of our objects of awareness, we know how we experience things, we know what, you know, how things appear to us, but we have no amount of certainty as to whether that reflects reality um, in any objective way. So, meditation to me has several layers. On the surface, uh, most people think of meditation, they think of, okay, thinking. Right? So the philosophers or the academics version of meditation is just to find you know, an armchair, a nice fireplace and do some contemplation and thinking like in the bath. And scientists do this, philosophers do this, any academic does this. Right? In order to get anywhere with your awareness, well, you have to find the time to do some thinking, some contemplation. So that's the first layer, if you'd like, of meditation. You go a little bit deeper and you realize that, okay, the second step is, as you mentioned, is like the Zen step where it's about calming the mind. So rather than doing something active, which is thinking, contemplating, working things out, self-reflection, that all st stuff is good, but it's also equally as important to take the time to settle, right? To be able to pay attention to the things you want to pay attention to. So meditation in the second layer is about removing or trying to discipline your attention to be able to focus on the things you'd like to focus on 
rather than have a really divided piece of attention that's focusing on a lot of things that you might not want to focus on or you're not even aware that you're focusing on, right? You walk by a store, right? You see something nice and shiny and bright. Your eyes just immediately dart towards that. You can't help it. So the second layer of meditation is helping you in the first instance, being able to discipline your awareness, discipline your attention to where you'd like it to go. The third layer of meditation is the beginning to strip away and to look at the things that you are aware of and starting to develop some insight as to where that attention grabbing comes from. So you start to ask yourself questions. Why am I, you know, attracted to this particular shiny thing in the store, right? Why do I like diamonds? Do I really like diamonds or do I, am I taken in by the marketing technique of some person coming up with the idea that diamonds represent everlasting love? What is it that I'm actually infatuated with? Is it the concept of a diamond or just some really hard carbon, <laughs> right? So that's the third layer, trying to strip down your thinking process and how your attention works and functions, what things grabs your attention, what things don't. So that's inside. And then the fourth stage is once you've slowly stripped away bits of your bias, you return to raw awareness and you see what's left. What is left if I, if I am less biased than I am before, if I'm more aware of why I have desires than before, then I can actually ask myself, what do I really want? What is it that I actually seek? What really matters to me? I no longer want to know or I'm interested in what someone else thinks my life should be led, right? I don't care about whether a Rolex is a symbol of success for a businessman. I don't care about Lamborghini is a, is a measure of success. I don't care about algorithms or numbers. I really want to know deep down what really matters in life to me. And a lot of people who go through a lot of meditation and they go through this process reach a similar conclusion as you. They think that ultimately the only meaning comes from the relationships we have in life. It's multiple fragments of awareness being able to come together in mutual recognition and mutual awareness. And the best expression of that awareness, as you say, is kindness, is compassion, is empathy, right? Trying to be good to one another, right? That seems to be something quite fundamental. And a lot of people who meditate a lot seem to reach this conclusion through various means. One, because they can't bear the suffering of others. That could be one way that have reached this conclusion. Two, right, they just wish well on other people. Three, they might come into the insight that we are not as individuated as we first thought, that we're part of the universe uh, as a whole, and we think we are individuals, but in reality, we're all related to one another in some form. We're interrelated in some form. We're interdependent in some form. My actions as consequences on other people, other people's actions have consequences on me. It's impossible to truly separate from one another as true individuals. And so that's something that is harder to accept because a lot of our education, a lot of our upbringing is surrounding this idea that we should find our individuality. But meditation seems to bring us the opposite direction. It seems to ask us 
to recognize that very little of what we are is up to the individuality. What we think, what we see, what we hear, what we smell, what we think we like, what we think we don't like, our desires, our perceptions, our motivation, our goals and ambitions all come from somewhere or something. There is no real individualization as much as we'd like to call that. There's no such thing as self-actualization because all actualization is done through interactions with other things. And so once we recognize that we have a relationship with all things, people easily come to the conclusion, well, if that's the case, if I have an effect on other people and other people have an effect on me, maybe there's meaning to be found in that. There Maybe there's meaning to be found in our interpersonal relationship in that sense. For scientists, it's very much the same. You can come to the same conclusion by just the study of the universe or study of phenomena. Um, there's a brilliant quote, uh, I forget, I think it's from Sagan or maybe someone else, that we are one of the ways that the universe knows itself. <laughs> we are one of the many bits of fragments of awareness that is possible to be aware of different elements of awareness in the world. And so we can do a lot of great things with that, but we can also do a lot of horrible things with that. Uh, people who have immense insight and reasoning and logic often can also do terrible, terrible things. You can be very, very clever and very, very horrible. So uh, definitely meditation is not always a guarantee of goodness. A lot of people who meditate are awful people, <laughs> right? They have a great understanding of themselves. They have a great understanding of other people, but they use that to a lot of their selfish advantages, right? So meditation understood this way should not be equated to a sort of uh, cure-all medicine for everybody's problems. It's just a tool. It's a tool for reflection. It's a tool for awareness. But what you do with that tool is completely up to, you know, the, the meditator, the practitioner, right? There's no guarantee of ego loss. There's no guarantee of goodness. There's no guarantee of, of, of uh, anything positive. What it does give you is that it gives you the beginnings of being able to discipline and to use your attention in a more disciplined way, right? It allows us to be more careful, be more attentive of what is going on in our lives. Uh, uh, some people have different takes on this, but Buddhists tend to think that the more attention that you pay to the world, the more insight you'll gain, and eventually there is a tipping point where you gain so much insight, you can't help but do good. But of course, in the beginning, having little bits of insight here and there might still lead to bad actions or more action or disingenuousness, uh, you know, and terrible things. But eventually, there is hope. It's an optimistic philosophy. It believes that, well, if people know enough, <laughs> people are aware enough, or people are wise enough, eventually they'll come to the conclusion that being good and kind to others is a, is, is a thing worth doing. A lot of terms get thrown around, like there's meditation, there's transcendental meditation, there's mindfulness and awareness. What is all of these terms exactly? I think the most simple way of putting meditation is really just paying attention. That's like the most simple way to put it is that we have an ability to pay attention to things. Why don't we pay more attention to that ability, to pay attention to where our attention is being directed towards, either by our own volition or by the volition of other things, in the, by many, many stimulants in the world. And so meditation is a first step towards attention direction or disciplining one's attention. 
Um, that's why so much meditation is a bit spiritual or a bit wonky, a bit wacky, right? They tell you to focus on your breathing and focus on this, focus on that. It doesn't really matter what you focus on, but having a point of focus is one of the first steps of bringing your attention from being a very divided piece of awareness, very divided piece of attention, paying attention to many things as, at once, right? I walked by an office block the other day and like these office workers had one large computer, one large screen in front of them, one small laptop in front of them. They had a phone in one hand and like a drink in another. So many things are going on at once. And meditation is just saying, well, why don't you put down those things and let's focus on one thing first right? Try and be able to be okay with having one thing. And of course, the next few steps would involve having less and less things, even within the one thing. And eventually, the goal of meditation is to be okay, to be content with just being, which is actually the hardest thing to do in the world for human beings. We like movement, we like action, we like volitions, we like thoughts, we like something going on. Um, that's why we have a lot of desires. We have a wish to be something else, to do other things. We're very, very discontent with just being. And meditation is saying that while you can't begin to really show yourself the proper love and attention you deserve to make good decisions, if you don't start off of the basis that you are enough, right? You are perfectly fine just being, right? From the get-go, you are already good enough, right? So you try not to chase after sort of things that will fill the void because the void doesn't exist. You're good enough just being, which is the goal uh, of meditation, to get to a point where you're no longer seeking, you're just perfectly content with just being, and then everything else becomes a bonus. Everything else becomes fun. It no longer becomes a need, a necessity, right? It's just a bit of extra in your life, which is quite nice. This life is meant to be sort of playful, meant to be fun, not meant to be filled with so much serious suffering, <laughs> as it were. So that's, yeah, my interpretation of meditation. I imagine, and I would like to ask you about this as well, that although people might have the conception that meditation is like sitting <laughs> in a room somewhere, in a quiet room somewhere, but if you hear the principle behind meditation, you'll find that it's actually very close to any sort of activity. Right, people find kung fu meditative, people find sports meditative. Um, I'm sure that process is likened to doing art is meditative. So I wonder if you know, the artistic progress when you teach it, is, is there some sort of similar psychological process going on there? Yeah, art is, is extremely meditative. I'll give a funny kind of story to show that. So I've been um, sketching at the Met mm. In between work, I'll go there and I'll sketch a statue. So I was sketching a painting in the European wing by Ilya Repin, and it's a really incredible portrait. I was so into this drawing that I became so unaware of my surroundings that the guards thought my things were abandoned, <laughs> and they were kind of worried about it. More guards came. I'm in the room while this is happening. I'm just standing up in front of the painting drawing. I'm in the room. Uh, they come in. They actually bring a dog into the room, <laughs> sniff the bags. This is over 30 or 40 minutes, right? They confiscate my bags. They take them to their security area. 
they go through all my stuff and they decide, okay, there's nothing dangerous in here. We'll just hold it. All right. That time goes by. I look up. I look over at the bench. My, my stuff is gone. And I start panicking because everything, like, <laughs> I had so much stuff in there. Yeah. My laptop, my wallet. And I, I, I'm freaking out. I think, like, oh, someone just, just stole my stuff, right? I had to walk up to the, the, the attendant. I'm like, did you see my stuff? She's like, oh, you're the guy. You're the guy. That, yeah, we, you didn't see any of that stuff? I'm like, no. She's like, we, <laughs> she, she thought I was such an idiot. Yeah. And I go, I run down, I get my stuff back. Everything's fine. But, like, that's how intense mm-hmm. the flow state, that's what artists call it, the flow state is in painting. Mm constantly in painting you're challenged so much psychologically you confront your own limitations of your ability to pay attention your ability to regulate your emotions your consistency you know your creativity your imagination uh your logical abilities all these things are tested so i think art any art it's not just painting i hear a lot of actors get extremely into their minds any any humanities i think is a great form of meditation but it's not a traditional sitting meditation that most people relate to also sports you hear a lot of runners uh they'll drop into a deep flow state like i was talking about and they won't even know who's around them you know so there's many ways to meditate i think most people are meditating i think without knowing it but I think the key point is being aware that you are giving your attention to a thing, right? I think if you have that awareness, right, then you are meditating. I don't know. Do you do you agree with that? Yeah, I think it's important to know where, to be at least be aware of where attention is going, right? Because if it's involuntary, mm-hmm. right, then your attention is being directed by something else, right? The goal of meditation is to bring it back and to be aware of the fact that, okay, this is where I'm directing my attention, or at least you know where the attention is going. That's quite important, because if you allow your attention to be taken away from you, effectively you are surrendering a part that is very fundamental to one's autonomy and freedom. That's like the one thing you got, as we mentioned in the beginning, right? If you don't even want that, if you don't hold on to that, if you don't give it your time and attention, then it will be taken away from you and it will be used, right, for all sorts of purposes. The entire social media industry and entertainment industry is based on the monetization of attention. That's really what it boils down. How do we get, you know, more views? How do we retain viewing time, right? That's really about all it is. And so it's a very valuable thing. It has so much economic value. And yet we're completely most of the time, most of us unaware of the fact of how much value it actually is. We give it away very freely all the time. And so, you know, the worst kind of monetization is not giving away your data, right? It's giving away your attention to things that on reflection, you don't actually care about or you don't find such deep meaning about. I would say um, as a precursor or maybe a bit of a warning that meditation requires certain elements to be safe because very quickly you'll find that people who do a lot of deep thinking especially philosophers is a trend of this in philosophers tend to be quite depressed and they tend to be alcoholics because if you think too much (laughs) right if you go too reflective it's very easy to start finding yourself in a world that is full of despair and suffering 
And you also be encountered with the idea that there's very little you can do, and so much is out of your control. It's very easy to be cynical and depressive. And some people even take the option of offing themselves, right, as a solution. That's why, you know, in meditation is often important to remember or to have a sense of purpose as to why you are doing it, to have a goal. Um, and not just to go into it willingly as an experiment, right? If you don't, if you're not in the right sort of emotional state, it's very easy to think yourself into a dark place. That's why in, for instance, in certain schools of meditation, like in Buddhism, for instance, the loving kindness meditation is, is a good foundation for meditation because it reminds you of a, before anything else, right? You have to wish yourself happiness and security first, right? Before anything else, if you are going to embark on meditation, you should remember that you should devote love and care to yourself and to others, right? That's why you are trying to develop your attention. You're developing your attention to become better, to be able to be better. Uh, and in spite of all the suffering in the world, there is something to be done. And I don't say this lightly. For instance, in Buddhist meditation, quite often, certain goals of meditation is to realize that life is suffering, right? We, our experience are suffering, our body is impermanent, that we're all going to die. And you might think that that's quite a depressing and nihilistic position to take. But the Buddha sort of talks about life and suffering and emptiness and permanence. But there's a caveat, knowing the fact that everything is going to end, knowing the fact that things are impermanent, that you are going to die, has an optimistic consequence. That optimistic consequence is that you have to make the most of the time you have, right? So people get it, it's very easy to go the other way, is they, oh, if it's all going to end, what is the point of it anyway? Well, the Buddha says the point is, is that you're able to do something, right? The, as you know, there's a, there's a film called Dead Poet Society, right? The play goes on, right? The world's play goes on, and you may contribute a verse, right? What would that verse be? What is that contribution you're going to make? Um, when I talk about this, I also like to mention, there's a quote by Mr. Rogers where he talks about, as a child, he was faced, you know, you watch the news and there's a lot of terrible news. Even there's a lot of terrible news now on television. People get upset by that. And as a child, he was quite an empathetic uh, person. And so he was upset. But he, was all, he would always remember something his mother told him. It's like, whenever a tragedy occurs or whenever you see something terrible happen, yes, it's important to recognize that a tragedy has happened, Right? It's not like you should ignore it or be blind to it or turn away from it. You should recognize it, but you should also recognize that that is not the full picture. The full picture is that there is tragedy and there are helpers. Right? If there's anything you should focus on is also the helpers. Awareness is not just deer in the headlights, just going one direction. It's taking in the entire situation, recognizing, yes, there's suffering in the world, but there's also so much wonderfulness, so much, you know, greatness, so much goodness in the world. And so he says he likes, he always likes to think about that thought whenever he sees something tragic, whenever he is faced with something, a situation that's full of suffering. He is reminded that, yes, there is suffering, but there are also helpers, right? And of course, the extension from that is to ask yourself the question, how do I be one of those helpers? What can I do? How can I contribute a little bit to the world uh, to make things a little bit better, right? So for Mr. Rogers, it's child education, which is 
very, very important. For others, it might be bigger or smaller, right? Some people might have <laughs> ambitions for world peace, right? But it could be something as small as just focusing on, you know, making a, a very, very educational, nice children's television show, right? It could be as something as simple as that. And doing that earnestly and giving that your full attention actually has a greater impact than one might think. So that's why you know you hear a lot of zen stories talk about you know what enlightenment is like right what is the process and how do you get to being an enlightened state is about in the beginning when you're doing something to give it your full attention right so they often say you know when i'm eating i'm focusing on eating when i'm when i'm showering i'm focusing on showering when i'm cooking i'm focusing on cooking right because that's how i begin to develop my sense of attention uh, that is how I begin to not let my mind wander everywhere to a lot of places, is how I make my attention useful. It's like honing a blade or honing a tool, right? I have to hone it and discipline it so that it can be useful and be directed in places that can be impactful. That's why it's such like an important tool. If you have lots of awareness, but it's not disciplined, it's not directed, it's not well-placed, then it's useless, right? You may have lots of awareness, have lots of attention, but it's not going to be very, very helpful. For instance, in modern day social media, it seems like people have gotten too comfortable with the fact that any social issue just requires the, the contribution of raising awareness. I think raising awareness is one of possibly the easiest ways for people to think that they've contributed something. <laughs> <laughs> right, which is why it's such a popular thing to do. Right? Whenever there's something terrible in the world, you think, oh, I'll just raise some awareness and I've done my part. But that awareness isn't very useful and it's not very well critically thought through, right? And we see this happen again and again. For instance, during the Black Lives Matter movement, a lot of the money was wasted. It went to people's pockets to buy mansions and nice cars. And, you know, people weren't paying attention to where the money is going. Is the money going to be useful? Yes, it's true that this movement and the, the cause is a worthwhile one. But if you really want to make a contribution, if you really want to change something, you have to be effective, right? It's not good enough. To raise awareness it's not good enough to just send thoughts and prayers you have to make that awareness useful you have to be effective and so nowadays is also the effective altruism movement is very much about this it's like we'd all like to contribute something but if you know our money to supermarket charities is just helping them get away with paying less taxes and very little of the money is actually going to help anything it's more about you know helping people get away with not paying as many taxes um, and feeding into this cycle, then we're not effectively being altruistic, right? If we're going to be effective in our help, we have to be critical thinkers, we have to pay more attention to this awareness. It's not good enough just to raise uh, awareness. So, you know, in the beginning, the Buddha says, well, we should develop compassionate thoughts, loving and kind thoughts. We should wish ourselves happiness and security. We should wish others happiness and security. But don't forget, wishing is not enough. <laughs> you can wish all you'd like, but it's no different than sending thoughts and prayers. To be effective, you actually have to do something about it. Right? If you want to be, if you want to save someone from drowning, it's no good raising awareness to the situation and just standing by the shoreline. Someone's got to get 
uh, training on how to swim, someone's going to have to, you know, properly develop their skills as a lifeguard in order to genuinely be helpful, right? And it takes a lot of effort, and a lot of attention, a lot of discipline to be able to go from just a bystander to a lifeguard, to be actually being a effective. That works with meditation as well. And so people like to think that meditation is just sitting for half an hour and just feeling, you know, all nice and well rested. Well, that's just called taking a break, right? That's not really meditation. <laughs> meditation requires you to genuinely take your attention and being able to direct it and to discipline it in whatever fashion. Like you mentioned, you were doing dream yoga is a way of directing your attention, right? Thinking about something specific is about directing your attention. And so in Buddhist meditation, at least, meditation often is divided into two different types. There is meditation and mindfulness, but there's also something called concentration. So you begin by developing your awareness, but all, in the end, you have to focus. You have to be able to focus on the awareness and you have to hold on to it and not let it sort of scatter, as it were. And a lot of people have uh, the misinterpretation of thinking this is an active process. But in reality, it is not because your attention is already perfect, right? We were born with perfect attention. It's only that there are things in life that take our attention away, right? We're distracted by certain things. So the only active process within meditation is not doing anything about the med doing anything about the attention. That attention is fine. You've already got it. That part is already done. The only thing, the only work you have to do is analyzing or removing the distractions in your life that isn't helpful. Sometimes it's just outright removal. You just remove contact with unhelpful uh, stimulants. But other times it's more about analyzing sort of our emotions, why we feel certain ways, right? The whole project of therapy and CBT works in a very similar fashion. You direct your attention to a particular issue and you want to learn why is it an issue? What are the causes of the issue? And once we know the causes, we can adequately deal with the issue. And so to get more scientific, there are a lot of studies done nowadays on the effects of meditation, on the therapeutic or psychological benefits of meditation. And it's not all just wacky magic, right? There's a psychological basis for this sort of thing. And a lot of people buy into the wacky stuff and they forget that there is a genuine psychological process going on that it is very, very helpful. Um, so it's important to distinguish here that when we talk about meditation, we're not talking about sort of the popular kinds of meditation where you just manifest a million dollars and you'll get it. That's not the meditation we're or interested in, right? We're not gonna teach, and we're not gonna go through how to get the winning lottery ticket if you just manifest it enough, right? That's not the sort of wacky meditation we're going to be going into. Nor are we necessarily going to do uh, what people call transcendental meditation, right? Doing meditation is not going to allow you to separate your soul from your body. It's not gonna allow you to trans, you know, to go through and trans. Uh, traverse through different worlds, right? You're not going to feel an out-of-body experience. In Buddhism, it's very clear that if you feel those things, it's not that these things are generally happening. 
is your brain making phenomenal experiences, right? If you buy into what your brain tells you, if you genuinely think that these things are happening, then you're in trouble, right? Then you're starting to get into like the wacky metaphysics and you're losing sight of the original project, which is to pay attention, right? Once you buy into the objects of attention, and letting yourself get carried away rather than being playful with your attention and knowing what you're doing, then that's where danger happens. Um, an analogy is used, so it's almost like being a magician and developing your, your technique. It's very important as a magician to be playful. It's very important for a magician to be playful because in the end of the day, playing with magic is supposed to be an entertaining, fun thing to do. But if you start believing you are genuinely God and you can do real magic, that's where problems start to happen. <laughs> right? If you start to genuinely believe that you can make things appear out from thin air and you forget that there is a trick to this and this trick is meant to be just for fun, that's when suffering happens. Um, I liked this quote a lot where the Hindu word for, uh, for play, uh, for instance, is the same word as for creation. And there's very nice summative quote of this idea that man suffers when he takes seriously what the gods made for fun right? we suffer when we take seriously this notion of genuine magic we forget that it's supposed to be playful um i was talking to someone the other day like if the magic analogy is still a bit unclear another way to put it even more practically and more sort of uh relatably is like playing a game like when you're playing Monopoly with your family and friends. The trouble is not the game. The game is supposed to be a fun thing. The trouble is when you start taking the game too seriously and sort of get upset with one another. When you lose your attentive awareness that this is just a game and you lose sight of the fact that it's a game and you start getting serious, right? You start to make grudges. You flip the table and you yell at your cousin, right? Over something as menial as having to pay rent or something. Right? That's when the trouble happens. So this hopefully is more helpful as to where the boundaries of what we mean by meditation. Because it's such a loaded term. Everybody has a very, very distinctive view of what meditation is. It's important to, I think, draw the boundaries and to be careful of uh, what we mean when we talk about meditation. And the reason for this is quite simple, is because ultimately, meditation is about messing with your own mind, right? And that can go amazingly and also go catastrophe. <laughs> it could be a, a huge catastrophe to mess with your own mind. And so it's important that uh, we are careful when we, when we sort of discuss these things and we're very clear about what we mean. We also don't want to attract um, unnecessary accusations that we're suddenly going to you know, we're manipulating people into wacky magic, you know, territory that somehow like, you, oh, if you listen to our podcast, we're going to teach you how to manifest a million dollars. That's not, that is not the project. I, I also wanted to ask, because you've had some experience with meditation and Kenny also has some experience with meditation. I guess something that would be relatable to share, I suppose, for listeners is how you got into meditation. Like, how did you... Where did you start? Like, where did you hear about this notion? Because at some point you knew about meditation, and before that point you didn't. <laughs> so how did, how did it start? I began uh, questioning, you know, my, my culture, my religion, 
things. It seemed kind of dogmatic. It didn't make a lot of sense why we did these things. I'm not anti any religion. I think um, tradition, culture, these things create unity between people and they're extremely useful and powerful. But it is also important to question, you know, your culture. Is this the best way? Why do we do this? What does this mean? Those are important. So I just want to make that clear. I'm not putting down anything, you know, culture, religion, create unity and collaboration at its best, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but not always, you know, at its best, it does that. But for some, it can be oppressive. Yeah. You know, I began questioning it because I think a lot of times we fall into dogma. These are just things that we believed as children. And then as you see a lot of teenagers do, they begin to question their parents. They begin to question their culture. They begin a very open-minded period of their life where they're just exploring things, right? And so I did that. I don't know when I started going to the university, I started meeting, meeting foreigners. There weren't a lot of foreigners where I lived and I was really interested in um, people from the East they introduced me to, to Taoism, you know, from friends friends from China, which I thought was fascinating, reading Lao Tzu and uh, Buddhism and the people from India and all these different things. It was just very fascinating to me. And um, my first girlfriend was Japanese. So, and her father practiced Zen. So I started getting into that culture and I even eventually went to Japan and she took me to a Zen temple, and I meditated there, and they're smacking each other with <laughs> sticks and everything. And <laughs> it was very intense, uh, but, you know, I started... So I've been doing Zen meditation, I guess, since I was 18, mm-hmm. something like that, off and on. And then, yeah, I was always questioning. I was, I was into my awareness. I was questioning things, and I did get very lost, mm-hmm. like you said. It did become very dark. Mm -hmm. And I think that is also kind of a natural thing that people go Mm -hmm. through. I know in Western traditions, it's it's a very documented thing that even some people try to bring about Mm -hmm. to get to the root cause. I I had problems with drugs and alcohol and depression and things, and I had had, um, a lot of intense experience. So Zen, I got really into Zen. I started going to a temple, uh, Shinyoji Temple. And I got, I did the Junkai ordination. I learned everything. I was taking it very serious. And I really like Zen because it focused on just how to live well. Just very practical things. I, I wasn't ready to take on anything about an afterlife or God. I just wanted to learn how to just live better. Mm-hmm. Like, how can I just <laughs> not do this so, be so bad at this anymore? Like, how do I get better at life? Mm-hmm. Right? And I think. If that's your intention, right, that is a really great act of service in itself. That is a way to get benefits out of meditation, at least for mine, is like, I just want to live in a better way. I don't want to hurt myself and others. I don't, I'm just so ignorant of all these things. Like, please, something, <laughs> something step in and, and help. So that's, that's an attempt. Yeah, and that, that whole thing kind of got demystified. It was, I found that it was just, they're just people, you know. 
these are just people trying and it kind of got me down but you know I, I got into science I thought that had the answers but that didn't make any sense at all you know <laughs> like really if you're thinking about what like what the hell mm-hmm. is this I thought this was supposed to be answers mm-hmm. like what is d- particle duality what is all this <laughs> <laughs> what is happening mm-hmm. It's more mystical than any of the originals I, I encountered. And then, um, you know, searching through philosophy. Yeah, I don't, you know, I still don't think I know shit, but I'm trying uh, to be better. I'm trying to know. Um, I'm still exploring a lot of things. And, you know, you mentioned there the mystical stuff. Those things do happen. Those are experiences. And uh, when they do happen, you can get very lost mm-hmm. for sure. It can, it, meditation can be very mind-bending. So I think Dylan's advice to keep it grounded, to always start off with your intention that this is an act of service. Mm-hmm. Because you can see it can become something that's abused. Yeah. You know, like um, a really obvious one is like, let indigenous cultures use drugs, mm-hmm. you know, as a part of the meditation practice. And you see a lot of people abusing those traditional drugs. You know, and you can abuse meditation. You can use it to have altered experiences and escape life and everything, but that's that's not what it's really about, right? So I agree with you, and I think, yeah, I want this to be a helpful thing, and I'm also doing it just for myself because I'm just trying to figure things out. Yeah. <laughs> I think the great thing about meditation is that it's it's a beginning to take a step towards not necessarily hoping that we'll find answers, but starting mm-hmm. to embrace the fact that meditation is not an answer, it's a tool. And science is a mm-hmm. tool and religion is a tool. Right? All of these things are tools to help you figure out mm-hmm. the best sort of answer for yourself, right? Because unfortunately there is no objective answer because everybody's lives and experiences are so different. For there to be an objective mm-hmm. answer that fits for everybody just doesn't, you know, if only life was that simple. <laughs> <laughs> right, but of course these things are all tools, and I, it's not like science isn't ultimately fulfilling. I, th- I think I know a lot of people who find science fulfilling, but not inherently. Science is a tool, is an instrumental way for some people mm-hmm. to get to the sort of meaning, right? Science is mm-hmm. in itself cold, and it doesn't offer a lot of answers, and it's more about the question. And it is quite mystical, especially when you get to the very, very theoretical and deep stuff. But what it gives people is this idea that life is about play it's about discovery it's about it's about trying to play with your experiences right and the only problem uh with science is that when you take it again too seriously when you say that this is what science says this is objective fact and nothing else (laughs) right that's when it's a problem but if you treat scientific endeavor as a playful thing that is very very useful right then you can have a lot of fun and I think the best scientists are people who have a lot of fun, who are willing to sort of have a lot of fun with this sort of idea, and they don't get let other things get in the way. Sometimes even very, very brilliant scientists lose sight of that. So Newton is a classic example. Brilliant scientist somewhat went a bit wacky in his later years, right? <laughs> because he started to take a lot of things too seriously. He started to take his, repu- his own reputation too seriously, right? Um, and he sort of experimented, he did some experiments on himself, right? He was into alchemy, for instance, and he drank a lot of weird things, um, allegedly. So 
I think it's important to approach meditation. The best way to approach meditation is sort of in a playful manner, right? Is to understand it's supposed to be a tool. It's meant to be useful uh, if you make it so, but it's always going to be a cause for suffering, no matter what tool you use. If you go overboard and you take it too seriously, right? A hammer is useful if you know what it's for, right? You're you understand the purpose. You're trying to put up a picture frame or something. But if you start to see all problems as nails, right? If you think that only one tool will help with everything, then you see everything as as nails, and eventually you'll find problems that hammers cannot solve, right? Then you'll be frustrated. Then you'll find dissatisfaction. Then you'll be annoyed, right? Like, why can't science give me all the answers, <laughs> right? Why can't this particular? Well, it's not supposed to, right? That's I think that's the important discovery that one makes when you do meditation or do any sort of critical thinking and re and reflection is that you come to the result that these things do not. Give complete answers, and that's why it's so fun, right? Because it's not definitive. That gives you so much more room to play and to be able to experiment. That there's no definite. This is the. This is definitely the way to do things, right? Nothing else works. Even within the boundaries of uh, service, acts of service that we discuss this. Right? Some people think acts of service has to be sort of this very self-sacrificing, you know, doing good for the entire world, right? But an act of service, as you mentioned, right, could just be self-improvement. If you improve yourself, that's an yeah, act. Of... Just be less shitty. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? I think most people put it, you know, best like the principle of non-harming in Buddhism and the and the golden rule in Christianity. Every religion. Has as its basis, right? Removing all of that extra stuff ultimately comes down to just don't be a dick, <laughs> right? If you can manage to do that, right, and you can try and be nicer, right, that would be a great sort of step in the right direction. Um, but the problem with all of these schools of thought is that once it becomes a system. And it has an organization, and it has dogma, as you say. It has a theology that there's certain things that you must do and mustn't do, and it covers it, you know. And it's obscured by a lot of complexity. It it deliberately obscures the very very simple stuff with a lot of fancy stuff for the sake of a lot of other things. That's when you, that's when people think that these things are so mystical and difficult to understand. Um, I know uh, a very renowned educator, a high school teacher, who says that the problem with education and academics is that it, for the sake of so-called productivity and progress, for the sake of educators to have something to do, you have so many educational revolutionaries, which seek to mystify and complicate the very simple for the sake of making a name for themselves, and to claim that they have made a contribution. That's why everything is such a mess. Why so many things are unclear is because in order to make a contribution, it's easier to do that if you complicate things, right? And I can see this in academia as well. Very simple things have to be overcomplicated. The language we use, how we write essays, how we communicate the stuff, we deliberately make it more obscure so we can fend off a little bit of expertise to ourselves, so we can build a reputation, so we can get promotion, we can call ourselves professors, right? We can be experts in something. That is. Very, very damaging to the endeavor of people trying to figure out what to do with their lives. The more obscure we make things, the more people will 
be lost and confused, the more people would be frustrated with why is this so difficult, right? Why is this so messy? Why don't why doesn't anybody say things like clearly and simply? Um, and that's that could be very very damaging in the long run. So I think you know even the project that you're doing with Kenny is great because. You you know it feels like reinvention, but to me it just feels like simplification. It's taking what people usually think is a very weird and wacky and mystifying thing. You know, art is a very very it's been mystified a lot, right? A lot of people think that art is such a you know other right. If you're not you you either are an artist or you're not right. If you're not in the art world, there's you know you you don't there's no way in. None of this stuff is open to you. And by redefining these things, you're making it more simple and accessible, right? Let's let's say we scrap away and we throw away all of the existing so-called expertise and academic and what they think and their conceptual definitions of what these things are supposed to be, and let's see and let's approach it from a very human experiential level, right? Something that makes that can make sense, right? And that usually, you know, ironically has better results, right? If you just strip it down, and you break it apart, it becomes much easier uh, to do. We have so many techniques now. There's so many courses on how to, you know, educate in this way, you should teach in this way, you should meditate in this way, you should meditate in that way. There's so many courses, a lot of them paid, right? A lot of them you have to pay for, right? And you very quickly see that something originally quite nice and helpful, again, cannot escape the grasps of monetization. <laughs> <laughs> it has to be sold and marketed in a, in, in a way because if you tell it like it is, if you make things simple, then the game is up, right? You can no longer have an excuse mm. to monetize. I think that was a pretty sort of that draws quite a, a wide net on what the sort of things we'll be getting into in meditation. But um, maybe it'd be helpful if you had something in mind and where, where so what's the plan yeah the plan yeah i really want to give something fundamental something extremely useful something that can apply to anyone's life i don't want it to exclude anyone of any religion or belief system i just generally try try to do something that's helpful so i'm glad you're on this journey yeah i think the first the first place to start is intention, bodhicitta, bodhicitta, I don't know which way to pronounce it, that the Buddhist tradition has a really great starting intention. For me, I think the intention of why you meditate, why you do things um, in general, the more basic, the more obvious, if you can put it in one sentence, it is, the more you'll get out of a meditative practice, right? So I think the next one will do that. And then just talk about the different parts of, of meditation, mm -hmm. like attention. Mm -hmm. um, in Buddhism, I think it's called shamatha mm -hmm. training, right? Yeah. I don't, I'm not an expert like you, but yeah, just different, different aspects of attention, mm -hmm. um, how to focus it, the different stages of developing attention. Mm -hmm. Body awareness, mm -hmm. right? Emotional awareness, awareness of your thoughts, awareness of imagination of the different processes of your mind and then once you gain that stuff then you could start really dissecting yourself and dissecting your experience trying to take a more objective view of yourself mm -hmm. i don't know i think that'd be that'd be fun um to do and then 
Maybe once we lay that groundwork into something more artistic, ways to use meditation in a creative way, you know, um, exploring uh, different um, states of mind or whatever. Yeah, that sounds, <laughs> what that you, sounds what great. That? Yeah, that sounds like a, yeah. that's a, that's a good way. So, of course, I, I anticipate that, you know, because you, you mentioned you want to be a bit more intuitive these these things. So we might, the plan may change or the plan may not, but that's the general direction that we're that we're going thank you to everyone who listened today i'm really excited to start this series on meditation with dylan i really love meditation and i think it'll be very beneficial to you and remember to be critically creative